Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. You're listening to the Irish Times Inside Politics podcast. It's Wednesday, April the 5th, and you're very welcome to the latest instalment of the weekly Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. With me in studio are political editor Pat Leahy, and in a little while we'll be joined by the deputy leader of the Green Party, Catherine Martin. But the parties which figure prominently, Pat, on the front page of today's Irish Times are Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, and the relationship between them, about which you're writing in today's email, Politics Digest, by the way, if anybody hasn't already signed up to that, they really should. The relationship between these two parties, uh, you, you you use a metaphor, you compare it to a, a historical relationship. Yes, as listeners will no doubt uh, be aware on this day in 1614, uh, Princess Pocahontas uh, married her English husband, John Rolfe, in uh, Jamestown, Virginia, uh, despite the uh, cultural differences uh, between them. The marriage appears to have been a successful and happy one. Uh, Whereas the arrangement between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, if that's uh, not too contrived... Uh, oh, surely not. A, a ...development, uh, is, um, appears to be running into some difficulties. That would be because the cultural differences are far more significant between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael than between a 16th century uh, Englishman and, uh, and, and a Native American. Certainly the level of mutual incomprehension... Uh, appears okay. to be uh, operating at at least uh, at at least the same level. No, I, I, I think to be serious about it, I think that there is, um, I think the Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael relationship upon which this government was built, that was the first building block just 11 months ago. And if you cast your mind back to a year ago now, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael were in the process of deciding that they would not form a coalition government, but that they would, uh, that Fianna Fáil would facilitate Fine Gael in the construction of this minority government through the confidence and supply agreement. That required levels of communication and cooperation between them, which obtained, I think, for much of the last uh, 11 months or so. But it seems to me in recent times is beginning to fray. I think there is a good deal of uh, mutual incomprehension, as I say, between Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, not just on the water charges issue, though that is where we see it breaking out uh, again today, but on broader issues, I think, on the Garda, uh, on the Garda question, on uh, on questions of base, the basic management of the parliamentary business, there is, I think, a uh, uh, there is a sense that that relationship 
is in trouble, that the shared objectives of maintaining this government and enabling this government to do its work are beginning to uh, to separate. That may be something that is fixable in the short term and it may be fixed by the new Fine Gael leader, whoever he or she is, when they take office over the, uh, over the coming months. But I think... Uh, you know, we have seen enough in recent weeks. We see enough on the front page of the paper today to say that there is a problem in this. Okay, relationship. Can, I, can I just dig into that a little bit more? And let's take the water example because it's the it's the most salient one um, uh, this morning. It, is what's going on here that it seemed to come out of nowhere? It appeared that there was more or less an agreement on the table on how this was going to play out, uh, and and most of it was about semantics. It was about wording rather than anything else. And, well, but it, but so so <coughs> when something like 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 this, or specifically the way in which this played. When it collapses in this rather spectacular fashion, is that because of a lack of personal connection that somebody can't pick up the phone to somebody else and say, come on, let's sit down and knock our heads together and sort this out? Is it that there is a sort of a antipathy or maybe just a mistrust, you know, always there under the skin? Yeah, I think you've touched on a few things that are happening at the moment. There is clearly some class of a communications difficulty between Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael on, uh, on this issue. I think that is reflective of a wider fraying of the relationship between them and a diminution of the sense that up to a point at least they were involved uh, in, in, in a shared enterprise or in a joint enterprise that had shared objectives. So, you know, last week after some torturous negotiations uh, between the two sides mediated to some degree by uh, the chairman of the Water Committee and through the members uh, of the Water Services Committee, but principally between uh, Barry Cowan and the Fianna Fáil spokesman and Simon Coveney, the Fine Gael minister with responsibility for this. But that, uh, the, the agreement that they apparently had last week fell apart yesterday on some of the language. But also, you know, there's an intent behind language. Language is important in politics. And that's why it's important. Language is important in politics, not just as uh, as as a means of delineating and uh, uh, delineating your objectives, but also as a means of communication between the two parties. And it seems that you know when I think the trust becomes strained between the two parties, you see that reflected in rows over the language because. Uh, and the language, I think, in the early parts of the the report that is due to be published was a particular bone of contention between um, uh, between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael yesterday and led to the breakdown that we saw last night. I was speaking to somebody this morning who said that they was, uh, there was attempts to make contact between the two parties last night. Late last night, I think Simon Coveney made attempts to... Uh, uh, to speak to Fianna Fáil on it and uh, and was rebuffed. I assume that that rebuff will be uh, will be. So there isn't some sort of withdrawn this morning. There isn't some sort of metaphorical red telephone for for urgent communications when required between the two parties. That there's always a line open that doesn't exist. Well, no? I mean, there are there are telephones. Uh, they they all have one another's numbers. They can speak to each other. If they don't fancy speaking to one another, they can text one another. They have been in communication sufficiently regularly that neither Fianna Fáil nor Fianna Gael nor the individual representatives, Barry Cowan and Simon Coveney in this instance, would be surprised to see their phone lighting up uh, with the with the other's number, with the uh, with the other's name. But when 
I, I, you know, I think when and what happened yesterday was when uh, one side didn't really understand on the Fianna Fáil side, didn't understand what the Fianna Gael side were up to. And the Fianna Gael side, it seems to me, thought that Fianna Fáil was trying to push its luck and push its advantage in terms of the language on the uh, in the early parts of the report. Then, uh, you know, a phone call or a text wasn't going to sort that out. I imagine there will be attempts throughout today to fix that. I, I was writing in the Digest... This morning that the two parties are, are, are kind of caught in a sort of no man's land between two points. One point being agreement that there can't possibly be an election on uh, on this issue because neither side wants it. And it would be, I, I, I guess, slightly preposterous to have an election on this tiny, narrow issue that so few people actually believe is a point of major political significance. And on the other hand, they're demonstrated inability to come to an, a, a workable compromise or come to an agreement on it. So therefore, to what extent does this, now that we've had whatever it is, 10 months of this relationship, to what extent does it resemble and to what extent does it differ from the traditional governing relationship between coalition parties? It seems much more unstable. I mean, we know that coalitions can be unstable as well and have collapsed in the past. But this one seems, and this is partly why I asked about the red telephone, this one seems, you know, much more prone to to collapse at any, you know, at, at unpredictable moments. It's certainly a more problematic relationship uh, to for 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 both parties than the conventional coalition relationship is, and that in a in, to some degree at least is because of its unprecedented nature. Parties know that the two parties have operated in coalition governments over the last 25 years. They know how that works. There is a roadmap to it. The civil servants are used to it. There is a playbook for a conventional coalition government with a dull majority. There wasn't a playbook for this sort of arrangement whereby there is a coalition government, but it doesn't have anything remotely like a, uh, a dull majority and therefore relies on the confidence and supply agreement with uh, with Fianna Fáil, which, you know, there is a text of that confidence and supply agreement. It lays down certain priorities and certain agreements on policy matters and to a lesser degree on the modus operandi that the, that the, uh, the, the two parties will employ to negotiate the, uh, you know, the inevitable vicissitudes of political and governmental life. But there's an awful lot that's not covered in it. Ironically, I suppose, the water, the, 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 it was envisaged, it was recognised from early on that water was going to be such a divisive issue between the two parties that they needed quite a specific roadmap for that. But they're having difficulty in sticking to that. They're having difficulty in following the roadmap that they set out for themselves on, uh, on water services. But I don't think we should underestimate the extent to which the difficulties that the government is experiencing in getting on with things. There are other factors such as, you know, Enda Kenny's longevity or lack of it uh, at the moment, which I, I also think are impinging on the operations of government at the moment. But to a large degree, I think the difficulties that this government is having and have manifested themselves in recent months are because 
people are just not used to this sort of arrangement. Fianna Fáil is half in, half out. Fianna Gael is looking over its shoulder. It has a constituency of independence to keep happy as well. And, you know, I, I suppose if you were to look back 11 months ago when this government was formed, you might say that the chances of it lasting are fairly slim because this sort of arrangement of these, will probably those, have pressures. to it'll probably have to happen a few mm. times before the political and the administrative system gets used to it. And of course Fianna Fáil have a vested interest in in those kinds of systems coming into place because it's likely to have to operate something similar in government itself at some point in the next in, in, in the next well, terms certainly of you know if you were to take you know recent opinion polls extrapolate the sort of election results that you might get from those uh, you know the government might change but the necessity for Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael to agree whoever was in government or not to agree on some sort of a similar arrangement would certainly suggest itself Is Barry Cowan right at all Barry Cowan the spokesperson on, on water when he suggests in a slightly coded fashion that some of this is being driven by internal Fianna Gael tensions presumably uh, arising out of the impending leadership election Well you can't take the politics out of politics. You know, Fine Gael is in a position at the moment. Enda Kenny will be uh, retiring, we expect, in the coming months. Simon Coveney will almost certainly be a candidate, will certainly, I guess, be a, a candidate for the leadership of the party, most likely against uh, Leo Varadkar. So, you, you know, you you can't divorce that completely from uh, you know from what is going on at Got the moment the, the extent before Christmas before hanging tough a bit with, with Fianna Fáil oh yeah. very much so on uh, on the housing bill housing. which was one yeah. of the only if not the only substantive piece of legislation that this government originated itself and brought through uh, brought through uh, Parliament with the uh, with the exception of the uh, the budgetary legislation that went through the finance bill, social welfare bill, and so on, um, so yeah, Simon Coveney, in fact, and that, that as it was perceived at the time, both in Fianna Fáil and in Fine Gael, as a victory for Simon Coveney over Barry Cowan, over Fianna Fáil, and he gained significant kudos within his own party and I think kind of catapulted his leadership ambitions and his standing in the leadership race to a position that it certainly wasn't in before that, that hasn't been forgotten in Fianna Fáil. And I don't think we have evidence enough to say, and I think it would be unfair to say that Fianna Fáil's position is driven purely by a desire to novel Simon Coveney or that Simon Coveney's... uh, Reluctance to, uh, to, to reluctance to back down on Fine Gael's position on water charges is driven solely by his but that leadership ambitions. There to, but you to, can't to, you to, can't to ignore it. You can't ignore. And I suppose then finally, on, on on the other side, the kind of tensions which are exerted on Fianna Fáil as it looks over its shoulder at the other parties on the opposition benches. Clearly, that's a that you know that's an issue when it comes to water, but also the slightly bewildering dancing on the head of a pin positions on the on the current current management of the Gardaí-Síochána. Yeah, um, Sarah uh, Barden-Fee-Kelly reports um, on the front of the paper this morning that, uh, that Fianna Fáil, after its front bench meeting yesterday, at which a sort of a harder line, I think, on the future of the Garda Commissioner emerged than had been evident uh, until then. Uh, the, the guys report that the party is now considering uh, a motion of confidence in the doll in Garda management. Now, that's something that Fianna Fáil have 
not been willing to go to until this point, at least, partly, I think, because there's politics involved vis-a-vis Sinn Féin. Sinn Féin have a motion down, a motion of no confidence in the Garda Commissioner down. And while Fianna Fáil has said that it is not in a position to express confidence in the Garda Commissioner, it has so far not been willing to say that it won't well, vote in accordance that, with that, that view. That's what I mean by dancing on the head of a pin. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a fine distinction. It is, I think, to many people, an incomprehensible distinction. Now it seems that Fianna Fáil may have moved to a position or maybe in the process of moving to a position where it will vote no confidence in the... What's driving that change in position? I think the reality of the situation in the Gardaí, the fact that uh, what's driving it is is that it is the logical political uh, conclusion of not having confidence in the Garda Commissioner that you should not want her to continue in her job. There's also an element of politics in it in that I think Fianna Fáil is nervous about being seen to side with a Sinn Féin motion against uh, the Gardaí. Nonetheless, when most of the front bench is saying that they uh, believe the Garda Commissioner should go sooner or later, I think they will have to... They have to make good on and, that. And just very quickly, if you wouldn't in, mind, in parliamentary sh- should, should the Dáil vote no confidence in the man in the senior management of the Gardaí? That 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 has no that has no direct impact in in law on the position of uh, of the commissioner. No, but but, I, but does it make her position untenable? I think it largely does. She has said that she won't pay heed to such a motion in the real world. I'm not sure it is feasible for her to continue if the Dáil votes no confidence in her. Pat, thanks. We'll be joined by Catherine Martin in a minute. Hi, I'm Cathy Sheridan, the host of the award-winning women's podcast. It's a twice-weekly look at the world from a female perspective, full of feminism, humour, politics, sex, storytelling, relationships and more. New episodes every Monday and Thursday. You can find us on irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts or on your preferred podcast app. And we're joined now by Catherine Martin, the Deputy Leader of the Green Party and TD for Dublin Rathdown. Catherine, I have to tell you that just before you came in, Pat was saying, he said that he did predict you to win a seat, but he said you won it by accident as well. Uh, is, that a, is that a fair fair description? I won it by accident. I didn't feel I won it by accident because I put a lot of hard work into that. It was by accident. It was uh, three or four years of um, walking a constituency. So um, Sure, but the uh, order of eliminations in that favoured you. Um, it did. Well, I, I would think it's the transfer rate um, that really favoured me, that that came back. That's what we we, we had lost in 2011 was being transfer friendly. And the, the Greens um, used to be the almost the most transfer yeah, friendly party. But uh, I, I believe, again, that came to to the, to the campaign and I did because if I'd, I'd hit every door practically in the constituency. Like yeah. On the last week, someone said to me, this is the fifth time you've canvassed me in two years. So obviously it's a no brainer you're getting the, the number one. But so I, I'd hoped... When I needed transfers, I know I've, I've met practically everybody in the constituency, so they'll remember me. And it, and it is a main part in a campaign to meet someone um, at, the, at the door. And it's something that a lot of people forget to do. And in terms of the psychology of the way then the people thought about the Green Party in 2011 and how that changed then by, by, by the election in last year. I mean, it, was, it wasn't just disastrous electorally. It was, I mean, the Greens really suffered in this kind of stor- storm of revulsion against the government of which... Oh, yeah, they were no, a member. Yeah, it, it was huge. And at the time, um, I, I only joined the party into 2007 um, when our first child was born. And But in 2011, I was a member of 
the uh, executive and when we lost all our seats, I was devastated because I, I chose the Green Party because I, I passionately believed that they were needed in, in our national parliament. So I, I made the decision then to, to run for, for deputy leader because I, I felt what would help the rebirth is if there was some someone new or a new voice within the leadership. And uh, we had... Uh, we, we then started the rebuild and, you know, it's really a testament to the volunteerism of, of the members of the party and just that belief that never say die, we can do this. Don't underestimate us. We will come back. That was the first test of the local elections. We got our 12 seats um, and I, I felt like I could, even though it was a three-seater that went against me um, for Dublin Rath down to go from five to three, but it was, I just felt it had to be done. Yeah, you know? I, I, I've talked on a couple of occasions to your leader, Eamon Ryan, about this. And, uh, you know, the decision to go into government, nobody could have predicted in 2007 how no. things were going to pan out over the following four years. Different decisions might have been made, but that's, you know, yeah. but, 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 but that's history. But I wonder, the rebuilding process of the party, has that involved, I mean, apart from reconnecting with the electorate, has that involved any change in the overall mission or the way that which the Green Party thinks about what its objectives are and how it might... How it might achieve them? Well, no, it's it's obviously the the, the main issue was the, the lack of that uh, real green voice in our national parliament, and that's what I heard on the doors last year that people really felt that was what was missing, and that's obviously you know. But I, I just feel the 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 framing of the message, um, like I I would see it, and I hope I represent that in the doll that it's not just a separate box of of tricks when you're talking about the environment, that everything is interlinked and that that environmental message, that green message, is one of social justice. You know, so when I'm when I'm the, in the Dáil, I talk about climate change, I talk about the damage that's done to our heritage, but I talk about education, I talk about the rights of mothers, of children, you know, so everything is interlinked and it's ultimately about that better quality of life because... You know, the, it's the most vulnerable who suffer when we're not looking after the environment or if we're not having that joined up thinking. And that, that's what's missing. So are the Greens a left-wing party? I, I, I would want to say that I don't, I don't believe in being left, right, centre, in, in box and stuff like that. I'd say most people would see us as being centre Left, if you. But I, I, I don't like labels, I, and that's not how I view view myself. Yeah, but, they, but they do mean things, though. Yeah. The, label, the labels do mean well, things. Well, we're not. You know. We're not. Obviously, we're not on 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 the right. I suppose uh, we'd never see us that. So I'd say centre left. Yeah. Would you be reluctant to go into government again, given the experience of two thousand seven, two thousand eleven? I think if you're taking politics serious, seriously, I don't know, reluctance, you could never be afraid of, of going into government because people vote for you um, and they, they want to see you to, to affect change, you have to go into government. So I'm not someone who would say if I, that I would always stay in opposition. Um, and that's why last year we were one of the few, if only parties, who said we're up for negotiations. And we said that right throughout the general election and we went in there. And next time around, if we get elected and hopefully with more with more on, on more Greens on board, um, there won't be a reluctancy. We'll be going there um, very with a very positive attitude. And and your leader, Eamon Ryan, wanted to go into government, I think, but he wanted to go in with Labour and the Social Democrats last year. Um, well, no, we would have gone into government if, if it was the right thing. And that, that's never come up, Labour and Social Democrats, because um, they, they weren't willing to, to get into negotiations at the time. It was just ourselves and the independents and uh, Fianna Gael that... That had those negotiations. I, you know, Labour and Sock Dems didn't present themselves to the table at all. I suppose one of the differences from the time when the Labour, when the Greens were building themselves up in the first, you know, at the end of the nineties on, onwards, up to up to a substantial political force by by two thousand and seven, was there wasn't this plethora of small parties and the number of independents that there are now. So you find yourself on the bench with a whole number on the on the opposition benches with a whole number of different opposition groupings. Mm-hmm. Does that make it? Is there a lot of kind of sharp elbows going on there need a bit more jostling 
there, there is, it, sometimes it can be quite splintered, but we try, I suppose, to distinguish ourselves by being more constructive and we're not, like, the one thing I don't like seeing in, in the, the doll, and I, I just feel you could lose the respect um, of our, our of that national parliament is the, the populism that has crept into Irish politics like it has uh, across the world. So we, we, we're not afraid of voting with government if it's the right thing. And likewise, we'll vote against them if, if it's the right thing. But, so we'll make the decision, we'll judge it case by case. I think that's, that's where the opportunity lies in this uh, 30 second doll if to be constructive in opposition so the and Greens to probably like the notion of this Scandinavian dream of a Borgen type uh, <laughs> you know policy driven <laughs> debating chamber in which the, you know in, in which our representatives you know come together and, it's and just decide like the best Borgen policies. there at the moment <laughs> <laughs> just like it we were just talking just before you came in about the um, the latest water charges brouhaha oh. Um, yeah. Remind us what the Greens policy is on water oh, charges these days. This thing is, I don't, I don't, when you say remind us at this stage, I don't see why you would need reminding because where we are unique is we have not changed our position. You know, for over a decade, it's the same. Actually, we were the, the first political party to call for the referendum, referendum to secure public ownership of water in the Constitution. And we did that over three years ago. Um, and we have all said a charge for um, waste of, of water. So, 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 like, that hasn't changed. We're consistent. And many others, when you saw them tripping over each other to get to the plinth yesterday, say, you know, me, sir, me, sir, um, this is my opinion, and that populism... Grace wasn't there, Senator Grace was Sullivan, because we're consistent on that. Um, and I, I'm out all the time in my constituency, and that, that you know, that's what uh, people want is that consistency. Where do the Greens go electorally from now? Are you looking forward to the next local elections or the next, you know, doll elections, which for all we know could be in six weeks' time, but it pro- probably won't be, but uh, you're probably hoping that they, that, that they well, won't gosh, be. Gosh, every day you go into, that, into Leinster House, you don't know when the election's going to be called. I, I think maybe there was three weeks after Christmas where I felt, you know, maybe it's not going to be called, but it's, it's practically every day. That was when the doll was in recess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, Just when it came back, so they hadn't had time to, to, to arrive. But, but the traditional way of building or rebuilding is to, you know, is to develop new candidates that it's through the local yeah. elections so, and then bring them bring them to the yeah, national stage. Yeah, and I would see that very much in the party at the moment. We're focused on the local elections. Um, selection conventions are happening. What I, I see, which is um, which is brilliant for the party, very competitive selection conventions happening for the for the local elections. And two and three can, candidates or reps presenting themselves so that they can be the candidate. They're competing for that. Um, so we're looking to the local elections and then the general election course we're selecting our candidates there as well again competition so the traditional green vote has been in urban middle class constituencies is that fair to say the, the core vote uh, for the greens the yeah, the, the core vote, but I, I, if, if, I think if you looked um, even in Dublin Rathdown, you see that, that reach right across the constituency um, um, for myself now. But where there is sufficient numbers of those of your voters to, while there's a green vote in every constituency, there hasn't been the only constituencies really that there has been sufficient numbers of green voters to be competitive for seats is in those urban middle class uh, constituencies. And that's the job we have to do is get to get that message right across every every corner of, of, of the, the country and that's why we, we are selecting the, the candidates and getting them on the ground and that's why it's it's brilliant that there are so many reps hitting the ground now and, and canvassing. So do you think right you'll be like competitive, I suppose, constituencies like Dunleary, Dublin North, yes. Dublin Bay North, perhaps yeah, those kinds of constituencies. Grace Sullivan, um, Cork would be looking very good. Galway, you know, so um, all of those. Pat, you cast a colder eye across the prospects of all the political parties. How would you say the Greens are are fixed at the moment? I think um, the 
locals and European elections of 2019 will, if we, it's assuming we don't have a general election before then, which is an assumption I'm not sure I'm comfortable in making, but uh, I think that will tell a lot. I mean, the rebuilding process, like all effective rebuilding processes, has to begin at, at ground level. Now, you know, the the Greens, I suppose, have an advantage in uh, in that in that their political brand is strong. People know what the Greens stand for. They don't have to carve out that sort of position. Their share of voice, like all of the small parties and groupings in uh, in the current doll setup, they're under pressure to get their voice heard. I mean, uh, you know, Catherine will know this that it's you know they're limited in their speaking time. They're limited in the forum in which they can uh, they can get their message across, and that's why it's important. I think for them to put candidates in position to get mm. people elected to councils where they have that sort of local recognition that uh, again Catherine talks about when you know she talks about going around preparing for three years knocking on doors that's the sort of thing that builds uh, a vote while there is always uh, you know a certain level of support that green candidates will get in constituencies to take it to the level that they are competitive in uh, the, you know they need strong local representatives who are in contention or on local councils the European elections, I suppose, last time. It was an important staging post for the party, I think, uh, in 2014 when Eamon Ryan ran. I'm not sure sure he necessarily wanted uh, to go to Brussels and uh, and Strasbourg, but it was an... uh, I think, had he not done that and gone through that process, he would have found it an awful lot more difficult to win uh, a doll seat. So I expect that conversations are already going on in the party as to who runs in the local and European elections. Uh, and can I ask you then, in terms of your analysis of the, the Irish political <coughs> landscape, that the, the difference between the Greens and other small political parties, many of which have come and gone in Irish political history, as we know, is that the Greens are essentially an, an international political movement. And actually, there wasn't really an expectation even with the wipeout in 2011, that they would disappear forever from, no, because the, from it was the national based on stage. A, it was based on an idea mm. and a philosophy. And while parties can lose elections and politicians can go uh, or can depart the stage, I think that uh, but that that idea and that belief system uh, that that's central to the Green Party, and which for a long time. Uh, shied away from electoral politics uh, until, um, uh, you know, until a group of people in the movement, as it then was, decided that the best way to implement their ideas or to gain traction for their ideas was to contest elections and organise as a conventional uh, political, uh, political party. So, you know, that is something that remains that, that remains central to the Greens. The point, I go back to the point that I made some minutes ago, though, that while there is, uh, while there is support for that, broad support for those sets of ideas, for that set of ideas in every constituency, they still struggle to bring it to the critical mass that enables them to uh, to win seats and therefore to have, uh, you know, therefore to have a, a an input into decision minor- making I'll at the highest level. Second, but is that because it's a minority pursuit? Is there a ceiling on Green Vote? I'm not sure, so sure if I describe it as a ceiling on the Green Vote, but it's a Politically, it's a minority pursuit in electoral terms at the moment, certainly. Yeah, the numbers tell you that. Catherine? Yeah, and you you also have to look at what we achieved um, last year and even in, in the locals. We, we had little or, or no money um, and kept true to that uh, no corporate donations. So 
the fact that we are getting some state funding, that means we can give support to some candidates now. And it really does come down to to being on the ground, being seen as the green, but being seen as the person that can that will work hard for the constituent and being visible as um, someone who can deliver and that ultimately that you you trust. So it's it's that it's both. It's the to me, I would be the green, but I, I believe I also get a vote because I work so hard. And it's it's that's what our candidates need. We need to be on the ground now. Looking at our convention. Um, Two weeks ago in, in Waterford, I'd be very heartened by the, the amount of new young young Greens in there, Greens that have returned as well to the party. Mm. Um, so I, I suppose one of the problems that the Greens have always had politically as well is that their uh, the, the the animating ideals of the party have moved into the mainstream. So every party, to a greater or lesser extent. Uh, at least you pretends know, to care about it. Pr- plays, li- pays lip service at the very least. Um, uh, to, yeah, <laughs> which is, you know, which which may be in and, some know, respects we, uh, a success of the Green Party, but it's also a political handicap. Yep, is is that a challenge? It is a challenge. And look, we, we don't own uh, every message to do with the environment. And it's great. We've had that impact. Like people thought uh, the Greens, when they were founded over 35 years ago, were quite a quirky, eccentric um, uh, political party. But now everyone's trying trying to be green. And I, I would welcome that. Um, but unfortunately, the reality is that um, the environment is, is not being looked after um, by, by the current government. And I don't hear genuine green voices. I just hear people trying um, to convince people that they're green, maybe to tap into that vote. And that's where we're needed because we, we would, you know, that's why we wouldn't have gone into government last year because we didn't see that vision there. And that's why. Indeed. And the, but the other side of that, I mean, apart from the, you know, the necessity to organise and to make a connection with communities is that, I mean, my perception would be that more, you know, 25 years ago when, when the Green Party was starting to form in the way that, that Pat described, there was much less awareness of consciousness of or literacy in the kind of issues yeah. which, which the Green Party is trading in effectively. So but that therefore there should be more opportunities. There yeah, be because more our, our chi- my, my children are growing up thinking green, you know, because look at the success of the green flags wasn't there when, when in our generation, you know, so um, that, that has to be t- tapped into. And that's why I feel the the young Greens are growing because the... the that's the, they are the generation that has grown up thinking green in, in schools that are promoting green. You know, my, my children think about it not, be, not because they're thinking about turning off the lights, about separating the rubbish, not because I'm a green TD, but because that's the way they're being brought up, not only at home, but, but in school. Is there an yeah. argument then for some form of electoral pact with, with parties who at least share some, some, you know, show some principles with you in this kind of fragmented political, political environment? Well, I think we do come together in, in in certain votes. Look at the fossil fuel divestment. Look at uh, you know the proposal to have the referendum. We we, we do unite on those, um, and and that's where the, the opportunities lie in the store because opposition can come together. Um, the rules of politics are the same, I think, for the Greens as for everybody else. Yeah. They will achieve their objectives, even you know even if you do see spectacular electoral growth from the Greens in you know, the next couple of elections or after the next election, they will only achieve their political aims by doing coalition deals with bigger parties, getting into power and working out the hard yards of how philosophy translates into policy and how that translates and how that policy is implemented. That's the difficult bit uh, in uh, And, and, in and again, I would say, like I said at the beginning, it's important not to, to pigeonhole us into to, to one little box because like today I I'm, I'm, have private members and a motion to extend maternity leave for mums of premature babies and some people said, really, I, and that's what you're doing as a Green? Like, wh- why wouldn't I be doing that as a Green? Because I, 
I joined that party to, to look for future generations, protect future generations. How how better to, to protect than do that? And that's that's ultimately where we, you know, I feel my role is to show that green message, that it's a broader message maybe than, than has been uh, thought of when you think of green. Yeah, but the business of forming coalitions and agreeing programmes for of government course, yeah. requires you to prioritise what yes. you want to do. And that will be, that's, you know, if you get back into government after the next election, if you're in a position to be negotiating, as I suspect you might be, as part of a group of larger parties, figuring out how you can make the numbers to with a larger party to uh, to put together a government that's when the greens will have to prioritize and say well you know what we're going to let the maternity thing slide because we want to get a concession to put this much more resources into cycle lanes or recycling or or, uh, or whatever it is. Well, you know, I, I would kind of been, I would, yeah, but I would have been fighting hard l- last year in the negotiations for for mental health and um, equality in education as well as the other so that that's where you know, it's not only one. And that's the danger that people think, oh, the Greens are only about cycle lanes and to, to hell with everything else. Of course, that's important. And it's disgraceful that only 1% of the transport budget is going on cycling and pedestrians because we have to look after safety. But we have to, it's the broader message of quality life. And again, everything is interlo- interlinked. And that, that's what I feel I represent. That's great. Listen, Catherine, thanks very much for coming in uh, today. And that's it for this edition of Inside Politics. Remember, you can find us on irishtimes.com slash podcast and you can subscribe via iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast provider is. And if you're already a subscriber, we would be very grateful indeed if you'd take a moment to share or to recommend the podcast. Remember also that you can mail me at hlinehan at irishtimes.com or you can find me on Twitter. But until the next time, goodbye and thanks very much indeed for listening. 